Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership in Insurance podcast, otherwise known as The Lip. Um, I'm your host, um, Alex Bonds, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by James York of Worry and Peace and various other uh, hats that he wears, but we'll stick with Worry and Peace for now. James, how are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. No, no, not at all. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. So, um, you know, Worry and Peace, um, I contacted you because I just, I love the branding. I, I think it's... Um, um yeah it's it's just very modern it's very different um and it was that the kind of differentness of it all that i was kind of really really drawn to um but um it's probably going to be me that stumbles across you it's a sort of market-led sort of reviews-led marketplace is how it describes itself for insurance and um, obviously the worrying being trying to take the worrying out of buying from a provider um but that's just me regurgitating from your website so um i wondered if you might be kind enough to sort of give us a bit of overview of um, the business and and how you operate yeah i'd be delighted and thank you for your kind words um the, the brand is you know a url that i owned for a long time and i just had this twinkle in my eye about you know the length of insurance wordings and war and peace and then the two <laughs> words came to me and it, you know the rest is history but um there's an interesting story behind the business. I guess that the easiest way to describe what we're creating now is an alternative to comparison sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whilst we say reviews-led marketplace, look, I'll, I'll be absolutely honest, we've invented something. It's a new category. And, and to define that in a single sentence, like you know, the investors and the you know, the angels dens want you to do, is actually quite tough. I guess, you know, my sympathies with the people that invested invented the glue on post-it notes, you know, what what the hell do you call this thing? Um, we're probably closer to a social network than we are a comparison site. Um, and, the, you know, the theory of this is all underpinned by a realisation on my part in my journey, my own career journey, that actually I, I could create a platform that connected the whole sector, in theory, anywhere, simply by focusing on tech and not trying to actually sell the product. And that kind of underpins everything. So, yeah, that, that's the, the long and short of things. I guess that probably triggers 10 more questions. So I'll shut up now <laughs> and let you kind of detail in. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose really focusing on, you know, how is it different from a comparison society? What's, what's the kind of, what, what, what's the magic source really that makes it not a comparison site? I, I guess, have you ever heard the, the, the story, the children's story called The Tortoise and the Hare? <laughs> Where oh. <laughs> probably the tortoise, you know, that in that story, the hare is clearly quicker. It has all the advantages over the tortoise in a race, but its its personal mentality is that, you know, it knows that and it, it stops and the tortoise plods past it. Um, I would say we're different in the way we view things because this is a long game we're playing. Um, you know, we could have created a platform where we were encouraging people to put prices on the front page of the website in the search bar in the product listing straight away. Um, but when you're creating a new category, you've got to consider what the motivations are, the opportunity costs are of, of you know, a two-sided marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do first? So how we differ from comparison sites fundamentally is our business model. That's probably the simplest thing. We don't make money from selling cover. We sell software, not insurance. And that sounds 
that sounds super simple and, and obvious in lots of ways, but if insurance is sold and not bought, then surely there's something in saying, well, let's not sell it, let's connect it. So that's where the social element comes in. Um, we make money from selling software to insurance providers, and that software has effectively a, you know, a credit currency, which can be spent, and I say in, in inverted commas, if everyone can visualize, um, on various things. You can spend it on you know, being highly ranked on the search bar, like Google AdWords, right? Mm. Or you could spend it on telling our, our reviews API to invite Alex to come to your Worry and Peace page and leave a review for you across a whole range of experiences. So not just that after purchase. Or, and this is, you know, certainly um, something we're going to be revealing down the line, there's loads of integrations under the hood in Worry and Peace because of its origin story, which I'm happy to share as well. I'm very open about it, hence where the tortoise analogy comes from. And those credits can be spent with integrations, you know, text messages, posting letters, integrations with third party technology. The world's your oyster there. And when you think of that credit, it's not just about acquisition. It's not just about retention or experience, not just about operations. It can kind of bounce around wherever you need it. Mm -hmm. So it's quite valuable in the long run once this thing starts to ignite and grow. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's a journey to building a new category, a new alternative to comparison sites. Either you throw a huge amount of money at it and try and go as fast as possible, or you build with a really good strategy and, and almost play a game of chess with it. And that's really what we've been doing. And I'd say our software is complete now. Um, it's about obviously proving concepts and all the tactics that we've got to try and build this new ecosystem. Yeah. So you might hate this analogy, but I love I love analogies, right? So I'm going to go. For it. You're 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 closer to wanting to be a checkertrade.com versus a go compare. So the focus is on the review of the actual service and product you're buying versus the price of that of that product. You know, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, I mean, Checker Trade have done a really interesting job in, in their category. I think the reason I'm fascinated by reviews in insurance is if you visualize a pyramid and then flip it upside down, all of the experience at the top of the pyramid, which is people that are getting a quote from any type of product, mm. are resting on top of the experience of a tiny proportion of the people that filter down through that coffee coffee filter yeah. um, because of the way reviews and feedback are used by the industry at the moment. Not by their own fault, by the way. A lot of it is to do with you know random variables like Google's algorithm and the existence of star review sites and and their model. So, you know, I think that everyone is is buying blind and I think providers are operating quite blindly in terms of the, the actual efficacy of their services. Mm. So try to reimagine how reviews could feed into a, you know, a distribution model without, you know, being a threat to the providers. So, you know, if you imagine if we receive a customer's email address from a provider to send them a review, but in theory, we also have a search engine that allows someone to look for insurance, is that providing any threatened by the risk that that customer might search somewhere else? Well, um, absolutely in, in comparison site land, they are in peril in that model because if they've received Alex from a comparison site, that comparison site can only make money in, in most scenarios when you move your providers. So they, they have to put you through the turnpike. You have to pay the toll. Yeah. So they're always a threat to retention and the model. And that's had you know huge implications. Um, so... You know, from our perspective, reviews are a really interesting way to potentially, as I said, take a lot of inefficiency from that upside down pyramid, the bits that aren't filtering down, and try and turn them into a almost a spillover market where our acquisition costs are quite low to meet people. So we can always become a clearinghouse of all that wasted data and that wasted choice and, and money. But, and I stress this, by putting the buyer in the middle, 
literally mm. in the middle. So it's absolutely renegade biocentricity we're talking about here because we're not selling them anything. And that's really fundamental when you really dive into that mentally. Yeah. Yeah, because one of the challenges with review sites I've, I've always had is that, um, and, and forgive me because this is very, very old data, but I, I um, and this shows my age, but I used to work at Woolworths um, when I was a kid. Um, yeah, it was my, my first proper Saturday job. And I remember the thing they drummed into you was that if it was something like if everyone, whoever had a bad experience would tell on average of eight people. And if they had a good experience or something like on average, they would tell three people. So one of the challenges I've always found with the re review led sites is that um, and I know this to myself, like I don't put anything on TripAdvisor until I've had horrendous experience or I've had the most life-changing experience ever. Um, everything that's in the middle, which is perfectly adequate or fine or just meets the brief, I don't tend to comment on. Um, so kind of what are you doing to kind of tackle that? Um, or do you do, what's your thinking around like trying, sort of trying to tackle that issue? It's quite lateral, actually. I don't view reviews that way. If you think about it, you've, you know, when you go on holiday or, buy a pair of jeans or buy a stereo you're consuming the experience or the tangible products straight away mm -hmm. whereas insurance is basically a loan that you pay back before you've even borrowed the money right and That's even it. when you need money we all know you've got to you know pass a, a bunch of tests so you know far from being a commodity like everyone makes out to be you know the purchase experience is a commodity but the rest of it's not mm -hmm. so i actually view reviews as a, a mechanism for helping the buyer because you know, this, this will melt your brain slightly, but you, you probably don't remember the people you didn't choose two years ago, yeah. but our algorithm will. And how could we make that change what you see the next time you look for something? And how does the thing you chose or didn't choose this time around affect the way you should look for the next product that you're looking for? No one wants to buy insurance. Um, you know, I don't wake up thinking, God, I can't wait to, to get my home insurance covered. You know, there's a varying degree of respect on the model but I think we can use reviews to shape what the buyer sees through their own experience on the stuff that they don't want to know, they don't want to remember, uh, and they shouldn't need to. And that's where the reviews are, are not being created so that the B&B and Zakynthos looks great. You know, Alex's brother, cousin, whatever goes and, and has a holiday there. It should be about you, your next holiday. Does that make sense? So put it in context of insurance. That's how I see reviews operating. It's self-serving. Whereas at the moment, if you consider most of the time you're invited to review an insurance company's after purchase, I'd, I'd argue that you've you've given them your review because you've just gone through the, the painful process of getting a quote, shopping around, and you've chosen them. That's why the response rate for reviews is loitering around 8%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, again, visualize that upside down pyramid sitting on a pin. The pin is the 8% of people that are basically leaving reviews as a favor to the insurer so that that insurer can sell more to random strangers and that's that's wrong that's not buyer centric mm. that's provider centric mm. so if we make the reviews to the benefit of the buyer and the and the wider social network we can do some really cool things with the search engine going forward things that actually google can't do because when you search for insurance you know google's jupiter for insurance distribution as we both know google doesn't know that I, my home insurance is with admiral or my car insurance with direct line. So it doesn't create context in its results mm -hmm. and, it, and it could, and it should. And that's what Worry and Peace is trying to do. And the reviews data, as I said, is, is fascinating because you might've got a quote from a company and, you know, it just didn't work out, right? You, you know, I always say to, to folks, consider like your exes, you don't hate all your exes, do you? Some of them just, there wasn't a spark. There, is, there doesn't have to be a spark with an insurance quote, you know, that no one said that you had to hate something just because you didn't buy it. So 
it's I'm really fascinated, as I said, by where all these experiences are really happening pre-purchase, pre-decision, and why we're not kind of engaging that data and then using it to the advantage of everyone, really, to create a, an efficient distribution category. So that's that's kind of where the review stuff comes from. Very high level, absolutely mad science experiment. But people are using reviews at the moment. Why not iterate that and be a bit more creative and create a safe space for buyer and provider where neither one is really going to lose out ultimately in the model by you know by someone needing them to move or, or mm. do something. It's interesting to think about because I, I was just um, my friend was going through a motor insurance claim um, quite recently, and uh, even though I used to work in motor insurance about fifteen years ago, he decided to phone me up and ask my advice, <laughs> um, of which I was absolutely no help. But it was interesting to talk about because we were talking about we make our buying decisions. It very broadly speaking, because. It, it, this is from a personal perspective and there are multiple classes of business and and in different classes you make different buying decisions but a lot of buying decisions the individual makes are on price on on the buying front but we judge insurance on the experience of that we have with that insurer particularly around claims and i've always found that quandary really interesting because we're we're not you know this is leading into your model it's like really I should be buying on what is it like if I actually have to kind of deal with these people and, and experience, free, I mean, claims is the obvious one, but even just at the buying front as well, um, what is the actual experience like? What is the actual product and service like? Um, but I don't, even as someone that knows that's important, I judge it on price. You know, I want to know who can insure my car and who can do it cheapest and I'll go with them. Um, uh, so it's really sort of, that's an interesting dynamic, I think, when you're thinking about buying insurance. Oh, it, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we harp on about to the point where what, once I'm finished, everyone will kind of be, James, stop saying that. But <laughs> it is the promise worth the price. That's value, right? And the value proposition for insurance, of course, people only have price to go on because who, who, you know, only a qualified lawyer would probably really get an insurance wording. And I think that's been proven by the legal case, which I don't think we should dwell upon too much because that, you know, we'll, we'll speak about it later, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, the value proposition of insurance is is absolutely prescient to reviews. You know, I always say insurance is an unsocial network because you've got random strangers who, when you think about it, this is really nice. Random strangers all chip into a common pot. You know, a profit-making entity or, or not manages that pot, fair enough. And when something bad happens, the minority of that pool of people, the rest of them are all fixing it for them. But none of them ever meet each other. None of them ever know. And all of them hate the fact that they're involved in this pot. We put that in context of, say, the NHS, and there's a very different kind yeah. of viewpoint in a commonality and mutuality. So then you consider reviews. Well, if I, you know, again, look at that pyramid, visualize the pyramid. It's upside down, quotes to purchases, to support calls, to claims, and then back to renewal quotes again. And the pinhead, which is the number of people that can be bothered to say this was good or bad, either angry or super happy. If only about 10% of that pool of people are ever making a claim and your feedback model is based on average scores, how can 10% of people ever reflect in the 100% of reviews? Mm. It, it, that just doesn't work. So that's why our reviews model is much more um, tabular, you know, buying support claims, gold, silver, bronze, because this average scoring is, is another distortion that, frankly, the insurance market could do without because it's already struggling enough to show if the, you know, the promise is worth the price and that over the horizon data just isn't materializing enough mm. because frankly, at the moment, the buyers don't, didn't, as I say, didn't have a platform that they could make themselves the center of where they didn't feel like they were being, you know, 
the patsy and being exploited for some reason. So that's why our model, I think, could be very, very interesting indeed, because it creates value proposition, gives context. And, you know, Alex, we've, you know, we, we exist in a world with Trustpilot and FIFO, right? They're, they're very important. So important, in fact, it's not known to many people outside the sector and the marketing teams, at least. When you have a good score on Trustpilot, it can actually affect the price you pay for a click on Google. It can have a positive effect. Likewise, in, in the inverse. And it can also have a positive effect on whether Google puts you in a free click area, which you can imagine can have a huge impact on your business. Mm. But, but obviously, you know, the whole thing's kind of based on the idea that you must get a good average score. Uh, why, are you, why are you asking for reviews? When are you going to ask for them if you know you've got this kind of conflict of interest of, oh, you know, damn it, if this score doesn't look good, uh, I'm not going to get, get what I need. So we started reading the comments in these star reviews. You know that too long, don't read. I doubt anyone, and anyone can call me, by the way. I'll give them a bottle of shampoo if they can prove to me they've read page three of someone's reviews in earnest. Yeah, but yeah. genuinely, those comments, when you put them in our format, so if you read Alex's review on Trustpilot of you know a provider and you put it in our format, you know that's a claims review, the data starts to look really different. We've translated about 5,000 reviews now. You know, For any machine learning people out there will realize we're making a training set, of course, of data. But when you tabularize these things, two 4.7 out of five averages look really different when you actually read the comments and put them in a different format. And that gives someone a value choice because let's say you've got two brands with the same star averages. The only difference is how many reviews make up that average, 500 or 1,000. But you put them in a format. Imagine if the 500 one had lots and lots and lots of really good claims reviews, goals, you know, five, five stars. But the other one, which had more reviews, was a bit more of a mixed bag. Mm. Give that to a lot of people, some people won't care and they'll just pick the one that e looks easiest to buy and the reviews don't really detract from that. But someone that's heard about nightmare scenarios like your friend, the car insurance, they might look at the actual table and think, well, do you know what? It doesn't matter that that company's got more reviews and the average is looking better. This company actually delivered. Their price is worth the promise. And that's value proposition, but it's subjective to the person's own preference. And that's another behavioral thing that I'm really fascinated by, how we can take what's already going on out there because you, you can't fight the wind sometimes we're not expecting Aviva to drop using Trustpilot or FIFO tomorrow we'd love to slide in beside them and be before them as I said at, at that pyramid that quote stage but it's also a case of how can we aggregate that experience data and give it context you know two brands versus each other because at the moment just staring at 4.7 out of 5 from a thousand reviews when you think about it it's actually completely meaningless yeah. it doesn't it yeah. just means one's trying to use reviews and perhaps you know doing so successfully for their own internal goals but how successful is that for the the pool the unsocial network mm -hmm. that's really interesting I, I i was sitting there in my head all i could think about was you being the uh dr michael murray from the big short of um you know the the, the i don't um, know if you've, I don't know if you've, if you've watched the, the 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 big short but the, the bit oh, at the yeah. start when they were going you know uh, about the toxic CDOs. It's like, how did you know what was in them? They looked, you know, and it's it's you know like unpicking what those reviews actually. What are those four point seven out of five? What does that mean? What's it made up of? You know, and like you say, if there's loads of comments in there, and actually it's all about the claims experience, which gets them five, but maybe the buying experience needs work. Um, it also means that data is more meaningful to the to the to the to the insurer, not not just the buyer. You know, like re reflecting that information back. Um, it allows people to change their service, change their product. You know, like there, there must be so much kind of product innovation that co could come out of the data that you're collating. 
I, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I mustn't forget mentioning about how outbounding comes into play here and how much you annoy people when you try and sell them insurance. But your thing about the big short, just that's got me, man. You know, yes, you're absolutely right. We are short on star reviews and the way that the industry distributes at the moment. Mm. But to do that, you have to have the ability to post collateral, right? That's our that's our time. You know, we've got to be around. That's why the tortoise and the hare analogy works really well. You've got to have the capital to be around long enough for our industry, which is quite glacial, risk averse. These things all combine to make it not likely to drop an integration they've already got with a star review site straight away just because plucky james says so yeah it'd be around enough time to do that but thankfully one of the main things about our strategy is because we're not asking to distribute anyone's products we also deem need to ask for permission does that make sense so mm -hmm. just like you can go on TripAdvisor, if if the zakynthos bnb that you wanted to give a good or bad review to was or wasn't on TripAdvisor. TripAdvisor have given you tools to unilaterally post a review and so Trustpilot actually, that's their model. FIFO is closed, Trustpilot is open. That's why people use each one, control. Um, our model's a bit different, we curate. So we don't give the individual who's obviously, you know, in insurance, especially a grudge buy, be a bit of a conflict to allow Alex to put Aviva on Worry and Peace and then start, you know, giving them, you know, a thick ear. Sure. But of course we crawl the market. So we're manually crawling the insurance market and Worry and Peace's ratio at the moment is roughly one to four managed to unmanaged providers. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a simple numbers game. We'll have the biggest number of insurance providers that you can review, find, crawl, look at, you know, Google can crawl on the insurance internet anywhere in the world within months. We've got 125 managed providers. If you look at the, the hair, the comparison site model, because they use live pricing and only live pricing, they don't like the candle makers, you know, in Harrogate who have a high street branch that are experts, mm -hmm. they've only integrated with about 150, 160 providers in 10 years. Yeah. So it's a numbers game for us. So you're absolutely right. We are short on, on a lot of the distribution models, but our problem is, of course, we've got to be able to post that collateral and, and everyone does look at us a little bit like, what are you doing? You're crazy. This is all working. Look at this. Everyone does this. And it is exactly like the big short movie. So if no one's seen it, watch it and hopefully you'll be able to empathize with my strategy a little bit more and see that it, you know it's it's done out of a really strong belief and you have to have strong belief in what you're doing which is cultural and mission-led mm -hmm. but it you know you have to be pretty brave to be able to carry on doing it and move it forward and thankfully as i said a lot of the tactics we've got for doing this like unmanaged listings and provider pages and reviews and etc they're all starting to show that they appeal and they work mm -hmm. now if you run the numbers and scale that it, it looks good it yeah. looks like yeah well and, and your timing's great as well isn't it because the business in its current context has been around just under two years is that right um no, no we we've been around a long time um this is where i you know i open up alex and tell you about my failures um I, well i was going to ask you about that because you because you were yeah. very you're very transparent about it on linkedin i didn't know if they were interrelated businesses because there's yeah. this wonderful web business and you put this thing about um you know basically acknowledging that it didn't work the way you wanted it to do. And I was going to ask you about that. And I was going to ask you my question, which I've written down. So um, it's just like, how important is failure? God, for me, it's been everything. It's been like an MBA and humbling, you know, ego crushing reality. Yes, I've got plenty of those stories to share with you off air. <laughs> we, haven't got, we haven't got unlimited amount of time. So, you exactly. know, another day for, for all of it. But, the, you know, the, the cliff notes of it are, I've sold insurance or attempted to sell insurance for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. I started out as an appointed rep of a big broker. 
and I, I tried to create my own affinity market. I, I used magazines yeah. and I was too ahead of the time. I was doing paywalls when no one else was. And, you know, when I got to a certain level of traffic and took it to my, you know, insurance distribution, it was never enough. So I went directly authorized. And then, of course, I had one product that was really good. You know, it was best in class and I sold lots of that. But when I try and added a second and third product, it, I was always, you know, never quite big enough to get the ideas I wanted to over the line. So you've got mm-hmm. a creativity barrier. You know, you go to imagine if you wanted to start a soft drink company, but you had to speak to Coca-Cola to get them to, to make the can, make the recipe for you. Mm-hmm. You would have little control, really, if lots of that recipe you had required retooling. And that's the reality of insurance distribution. But what we did do in the meantime was build a bunch of technology. You know, um, I had the benefit of, you know, my family are in insurance. I'm unashamedly, it's not nepotism. Family business is fantastic. You won't find a smarter investor than a family member who has got experience in your sector. You, you, you always also have that issue of crumbs. If I lose this money, that's a big responsibility. I didn't make it. It's not my money. Yeah. Um, you know, I would argue that that's equally as hard a burden as it is to be completely on your own and have to find all those VCs. They're obviously different contexts. So, yes, we failed for a long time to achieve our mission of creating effectively a supermarket for insurance that sold the products. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where this ability not to pivot, but to split them in half came from. So we took the software business out of that intermediary, which still exists uh, to a certain degree. And there's going to be changes there that hopefully people will think are good because I'm doing some things there. But worrying pieces emerge from that. And it's just a software company. And in that sense, you're right. It's two years old. Yeah. as its own you know independent country <laughs> so to me so yeah it's been a long journey to that and there's been a lot of lessons from that and, and the one consistent thing has been what i've tried to stand for and the network you know just doing things for the the industry and that's where a lot of the other work that you mentioned at the start kind of comes from because there's yeah. power in that, you know? yeah I, I think that's so important as well i mean i think the sort of idea of giving back as well is, is a huge part of it um i want to i want to pick that up but i was just going to go back to your timing because the comparison sites obviously come under a lot of pressure in the last um, you know 24 months um, and and it kind of shows the pressure they've come under is, is almost like the, the the justification for your for your for your business and where you know because it's saying that the nature of that model means that the only way you're going to do it is by aggressive pricing and then you you know I think some of the conflict has been about kind of what you go into the funnel you get you get your great price up front and then you you can't be matched if you're an existing com- customer and then you have the same experience everyone has is that your insurance funnily enough goes up quite a lot year too um which is ridiculous because then you just change you just change you change price you know you change the provider so um but your timing must be good around that kind of decision and impact from the comparison side yeah and, and that again plays to the tortoise right you know stay in the stay in the game long enough roll the dice enough times and eventually luck timing and effort will all align and you know we're not there yet of course it's a good moment for us but you know you're you're absolutely right i would say to anyone listening you know the comparison sites in in reality the bigger and more scaled worry and peace gets their model can't really turn to to meet it in the same way as it could if it was the same business model does that make sense you know sure. fundamentally we're you know different it's you know carrots and turnips in terms of um, models i'm not saying which vegetable we are at the moment but um they you know they make money out of a transaction fundamentally and, and i would argue that those on the stock market or you know proving that that's profitable it's going to be very difficult for them to just all of a sudden say oh do you know what the way worry and peace do it 
it, that's great. Let's just drop sticks on all this income that we've been generating and change our entire model. So there's a, an openness to our model. and The nature of it is very, as I said, it's very different. And when you consider it, one thing I always say to providers when I demo to them is, if, if they're on comparison sites in any ways, do you actually know what everyone else pays per transaction? How transparent is this thing? You know, like, are you, are you being, you know, fairly treated? Because no one knows what anyone else pays on Google AdWords. They've got a rough idea, right? There's a, you know, Google gives you a little bit of a, a, a site, but these are, you know, two massive distribution modes and they're a prisoner's dilemma, fundamentally. You're in a separate room to the other people you never see. And, you know, you would think that that would, that an alternative to that would highly appeal to other people, especially when they can use both our review software. And we didn't mention at the start, but we have an insurance wallet, which is very biocentric again. Yes. In theory, any provider could throw every single quote at the War and Peace database, every single document and every single review request. And all our database is going to do is say, Alex knows these people. Now, if you think about that, why wouldn't you do that? That's like, you know, a territory marking exercise and self-serving because it could create something that gives you leverage over two very gravitational business models that you've struggled to escape from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did see the insurance wallet. I, I thought that's absolutely perfect. I'm moving house at the moment and I, was, I suddenly had a mild panic that I was like, I don't know if my house is insured. It should be because, but you know, when you forget, because as you rightly say, because I haven't had the claim on it and, and I'm so removed from who it is or anything, which makes me seem like a, I, I'm just not a guy that worries about that sort of stuff. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the weeds of the admin. I should be more so, but mainly because you get this, you know, it's one of those emails that comes in once a year, it, it disappears in all the billions of other things I've signed up for, for, for the 20 years I've had that Gmail account, you know, it's, it's the classic thing. Um, and actually kind of somewhere that kind of added value, way of collating information that is relevant to my kind of wants and needs from insurance um, is, is, is super important. Um, I think that's huge. Um, I did want to pick up what you, we, we started talking about briefly, um, sort of the giving back element of your career, because you've been involved in, you know, your co-chair and one of the original founders of InsureTech UK, I believe, um, but then also been involved in things like Biba. You know, you've clearly got an outward looking approach to kind of the industry. Um, how important do you think that is? Um, Mission critical, like, yeah. you know, absolutely fundamental. Um, our industry is highly networked, highly networked to, you know, it's not six degrees of separation, it's 1.2. Um, <laughs> got to be absolutely mindful of that um but at the same time you know you've got to stand for something in my opinion people it's very difficult to figure out who the good eggs are sometimes in the market and and they do gravitate to each other so sometimes you've got to put up a signal flare you know and say this is what i stand for and what i do and give a little back and you know we're all on the same team right as i said to you we're we've got a a, when you consider it a product an idea that's incredibly packed with virtue strangers helping the minority who have bad luck and we don't as one, we don't see that that's the same theme for every single part of the supply chain, regardless of your profit motive. So I've always been trying to sort of get to that point where, you know, the utopia for me would be the industry all in one room, just focused on that reputation of people liking the concept of insurance a bit more, mm. you know, our, our insurance, like our NHS. So I do a bit of work for that. And it's enabled me to, to meet people. And of course, I tell my team that this is, is called selfishly unselfish, because 
you know, I don't know if you're a fan of Friends, but there's this great episode where Phoebe tries to do, you know, an unselfish act and without getting any benefit or good feeling herself, and she can't do it. And it's true, <laughs> you do nice things, people try to reward you with either, you know, kudos or, you know, a high five or, or they want to do business with you. So it, ironically, doing good things and volunteering does come back to you. Of course it does, because you meet cool people. And of course, when you pop up that signal flare, it's a sign all the good eggs are like, right, there you go. I'm going to head over there. There's going to be more people like me arriving anytime soon. And it's kind of been a journey into realizing that that works. I initially did some of the volunteer work just because I felt, you know, maybe I should do that. I've got a bit of spare time. You know, you heard about, you know, Google, the 10% time stuff. I was like, what does that look like for insurance? I'm working on my own day in, day out. So I'll go, I'll go and do this and see what happens. And I, I found myself being able to you know, I wouldn't say I was always, you know, able to completely give constructive input early on, but I got better and better at learning when I should speak and how I could contribute. And um, also being very self-aware of the fact that I thought very differently to a lot of people I spoke to. And that wasn't a bad thing because sometimes naively, or I don't know what, you know, you call it ego. I just said it, you know, and, and sometimes if you just say things out loud, it starts an interesting conversation. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I mean, I think there's a couple of things in there. I think, I think, I think insurance is uniquely collaborative. Um, it's um, because of the nature of it. I mean, you know, because of the, like you say, it's the, it's the rule of large numbers. It's, it's, you know, we're all paying in the, the sort of core principle, I think is collaborative. Um, you know, you can see it obviously in subscription markets like Lloyd's, there's a, there's a natural collaborative structure to the market. Um, but even kind of just broadly brokers, insurers, there's lots of kind of interconnectivity, but, but, between different businesses, which is quite unique, um, the depth of those relationships. Um, and there's definitely like a, a very big community. Because um, I, I wrote something earlier on, actually on LinkedIn today, which was about, um, you know, about startup hubs. And there's there's these little communities that build and and how collaborative that is. Because the insure tech industry, um, since I've been doing these podcasts, for example, it's been really, really fascinating to see how many, once you start the ball rolling, how many people go, oh, they'll, they'll be on and go, oh, you should have so-and-so on, or they've got loads to say, or, or if you ever want to tackle this issue, um, artificial intelligence, you should talk to that guy. So there's this constant flow of kind of sort of goodwill, really, constant goodwill. And, I, and I'm a big believer in, in, in collaboration being the kind of really, that's the key thing that makes um, innovation happen. That's, that's that's essentially what I think. And Alex, catch the irony, right? You've got a highly social, highly collaborative industry with a wall around it, and everyone outside doesn't have that vibe yeah, with it. Exactly. You know, it's ironic. You know, um, two little anecdotes I, I kind of want to consider is, you know, when I when I consider the role of insurance, you've got to think, what's our purpose? You've got to really go back to the strategy of what insurance is for, and ultimately, it's to enable prosperity. You know, if you take an obtuse example like Elon Musk, right? Man wants to set up a colony on Mars. Yeah. And you know, remove insurance from that equation and tell me if it works. Yeah, 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 sure. The way, right? It doesn't. So we need to have more confidence and also start to come in at the front end and say, hey, hey, you know this model we've got where we pull all the money? Well, yeah, we, we only really make money out of it if we start investing it. And some of it, I guess, we can invest in some cool stuff. Would you like to put a colony on the moon. I mean, yeah, I guess we could ensure that as well if you wanted to do it. So my role, you know, I think it as a random particle in the industry is, I guess, to try and say, look, come on, let's find a purpose and let's maybe try and get in front of some of the ideation and inspire people because this leads to the second anecdote. You know, I'm very grateful for this too. When I first started my intermediary, it was called Worry and Peace, of course. 
I met a, a chap who runs an innovation lab for a big insurer. He was called Paul. Uh, lots of people know him on the call, so I won't name drop his second name to fluff his ego. But um, Aviva went and bought a building, Alex, in central London, right? High real estate cost to do innovation. And I don't think they quite realized the effect that had on me when I, when I spotted what they'd just done. Hmm. They decided to innovate, so they bought a building. And just think about that for a second. That building was probably the value of the high street of Grimsby. Yeah. And I just thought, God, I don't think you quite realise what you could do if you just realised your purpose and then put yourself in front of that purpose and fed it, you know? And that's the that's kind of what all this collaborative stuff is, is, is you know, leading to, is that I'd love us to start creating ideas that we could then ensure. And it relates to everything. I mean, you know, Brexit is the hot topic at the moment. 98% of trade, I think, moved by ship, you know? Where are the ships insured? Well, quite a lot of them are insured in London. So what could insurance do to think, oh, how could we make trade a bit easier? So just, I think we relate to everything and, and then at the same time relate to nothing apart from, you know, insuring prosperity. And I think that's wicked. So yeah, I'm always geeky about that. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I said, um, do you know Nigel Walsh from uh, Deloitte? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. positive. I'm, I'm very much on his, he's on his mission for 2021 to make people fall in love with insurance again. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in that. Um, yeah, I don't think we do a very good PR job of kind of bringing people from outside into the industry. I was talking to a founder from Canada and, and he, he worked in artificial intelligence and it's like the classic thing of he's ended up in insurance. He could have been anywhere. He's, 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 he's an expert in um, natural language processing. He's, you know, he, he, created, he created this incredible app that went, you know, wildly viral. And it was essentially um, analyzing uh, text data. So you didn't have to read your textbooks at university. So, you know, perfect for students. And then um, just happened to be watched by an insurance broker who said, this has got a massive application to insurance, um, reading policy documents, you know, comparing the two and, and getting rid of a lot of the admin. And that's how he's ended up playing in that world. But as we were discussing, he would not have known about insurance, but perchance he, he comes across this guy. And I, and I was the same. I, I'm from Chelmsford um, in Essex and, and there's a big RSA there. So I came out of university and didn't know what to do, stumbled into some sort of recruiting session, ended up working there. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be done because we sell the idea of working insurance as it is today. But I don't think we focus on the second part of what you said, which is how do we look at insurance as an enabling force for good? You know, it, it's the thing that allows people to trade. It's the thing that allows businesses to happen. It's the thing that allows people to go to Mars um, if, you know, if, if we ensure it to do so. Um, and that's just the kind of, that's the scope of what it does now. But w what could it do? Um, what's the innovation look like? And, and that stuff's really exciting. That's why I do the podcast. That's why I want to talk about innovation and insurance. So, yeah, I, I'm 100% I'm behind you on that because I think, I think we just need to do a slightly better job of, of kind of promoting it. But probably by chiseling away at that wall that you said was around um, the, this industry. Um, yeah, is that is that wall a, a shell we've built for ourselves, or a, a you know a castle we've retreated to? I don't know. You know, that's 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 some for someone else to kind of decide. But no, well, know. I mean, I think anecdotally, outside looking in, I think one of the things that I see is that you know if you really look at innovation, there are people putting up walls as we speak to prevent that from happening or needing to happen. So that's you know that's and that's natural. There's a little bit of cultural kind of 
you know, we're going to have a generational shift of, of, of kind of leaders that are more comfortable um, outsourcing innovation. There, there's going to be people that, you know, I talked about cars, right? Autonomous cars are coming. Um, I've driven a car for so long. I can't quite, even though I'm so a proponent of tech and I know that an autonomous car is less likely to crash than me. Am I going to be able to sit and relax as a passenger in an autonomous car? I don't yet know. I'd like to think so, but I don't know. And I think when you apply things like automation to the insurance market, I understand if you've worked in a market for 30, 40 years, that you might have a natural kind of tendency to step away from that. So I think we are seeing barriers put up around those kind of changes. Um, and also, let's, let's not, you know, elephant in the room. If you're hugely profitable at running a business, it's a very difficult thing to turn around to your shareholders and go, oh, by the way, um, we're going to dip into that um, reserve of capital we've got. We're going to dip into that, um, you know, money that's going to come back to you. And we're going to spend that on 20 years in the future, um, new way of doing insurance. That's, that's quite difficult to justify. And I think it's that long term versus short term goals is sometimes some of the conflicts in the industry. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, and if the industry is, is genuinely looking at tech and thinking, what should I do with it? Well, look in context, how much do gaffer, as, as they're affectionately yeah, known, yeah. on research? And has that been successful for them? You know, obviously, you've got to spend wisely, but you're absolutely right. This mentality of, um, you know, things are how they are. Well, I think the genie's out of the bottle when it comes to tech. And there are relentless people in the technology sphere that, that just like to disrupt because why not? And there's, you know, there's fat on the bone. They have an ideology to it. That's what Silicon Valley is rooted in, an ideology of relentlessly pursuing inefficiency and solving it with tech. Mm. They're not going to look at insurance and think, oh, geez, you know, too complicated. We can't stop here. They're going to go for it and they'll keep attacking. Um, so, you know, the best thing to do is to blow with the wind sometimes and or surf on the wave as opposed to stand there with your shield and hope that you can withstand the the forces so um <laughs> always been one to try and move in the direction as a, but you know obviously carve my own path which i hope i do of course of course and um, i'm conscious of your time so i just wanted to one thing well, hey, okay. things up and um but there was i was going to ask you this and this i didn't send you any prelim on this so um it might be a bit unfair but i was going to say the good thing about your role in being involved in InsureTech um, UK, right? You've seen some things go well. You've seen some things go badly. You, you've mentioned, you, you know, your own kind of um, things that haven't worked out as, as you would have wished. What are the kind of like, what are your top three things you've learned from sitting in that role as being a sort of a co-chair founder of that, um, of that InsureTech UK community? Um, that every time I smirked at the word synergy, it actually was real. <laughs> so that's probably <laughs> the first thing. And you know, a lot of people say, "Where did InsureTech UK come from?" And I was, I was one, definitely one of the driving forces behind it. But it takes that synergy for you know that viral critical mass, right? You know, ironically, my motive the whole time was to not be on my own. So what I've learned the most is that people naturally, especially in our industry, gravitate towards sharing and you know, finding common goals and, you know, embrace that. It's a, it, it's been a really cathartic thing. Um, and people challenge you as well with their views because you can get, you know, you can play your own golf ball in life, of course, but just watching someone else and how they operate is really quite, you know, quite cool. And it is a good feeling when you, you know, you two or three separate companies with completely different motives and shareholders and everything else find a common issue and, you know, are putting their heart on it. And it's great. Now, that's the thing I probably learned the most. But you've, you've got to be really mindful that it's got to have, you know, a lot of flexibility built into it. 
because you know it is literally about the lowest common denominator a lot of times you've got to find things that everyone can relate to otherwise no one will and that's the difficulty so bringing people with you on these visions is is sometimes tough um because you'll go through a phase like with the startup how are you gonna how are you gonna do this how are you gonna afford this what are you really gonna deliver what how are you different to these people it's all the same stock questions um even when you're doing collaboration not for profit mm-hmm. so that, that's probably the things i've learned the most what I also learned was that it's a playbook you can rinse and repeat, right? And and if you've got a good idea and a, a virtuous kind of goal, a policy idea or whatever, find a collective, pop up a signal flare, find a collective. And, and you know, the, the test of this is don't try and run it yourself. Don't do it for the, you know, the paycheck, the ego, the, the job description to be headhunted. Do it so that you can step away from it and it would run without you there. And then you've achieved something like really cool. And that's fundamentally what I could say I learned about InsureTech UK is I my contribution to it was obviously a half decent because if I stepped away right now, they wouldn't miss me. Not I'm not saying I don't add value, but I'm saying the thing can run independent of any one member of the of the hive. And that's great. That's yeah. the key to any collective synergy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's like always people say, you know, growing a good business, it, essentially it should be, getting to the point where it runs without you yeah absolutely and, and and your whole job once you're sort of there should be like replacing yourself you know and and moving on to other things so that's fascinating um james I, i'm gonna i'm gonna draw it to a close there because i've got uh, you know uh, we we don't want to overstay our welcome on people's eyes or ears i think but um um what's um you know just to sort of close it out um you know 2021 is just kicking off we're recording this in january um what can we expect from you guys this year and and if anyone's listening and and, and you kind of need any help input what would be useful to you? Anyone listening knows an insurance buyer, get them to come leave a review on Worry and Peace. Um, that's the humble origins. Where we're going to head towards is, is really breaking cover on that mission to become an alternative, as I've mentioned, in comparison, and being brave about that and knowing, you know, hey, we're an underdog here, you know, help us out. So that messaging will be really critical. So a few tech releases coming up, which are worth looking for. In terms of InsureTech, InsureTech UK, look for more success. I mean, the stats yesterday that came out um, UK InsureTech was 48% of European funding for InsureTech in wow. 2020. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think you know, there's a difficult moment coming up for the market when furlough ends, and it'll be interesting to see how many people you know are in jeopardy in their roles. I think they should take heart that there's a whole startup community ready and waiting for those people that think it's now or never. And yeah. that's that I look forward to as well. I think there's going to be an explosion of InsureTech for maybe the wrong reasons, but I think it will work out. And so the glass is very much half full, which Nigel will like. It's all about the cake, as he would say. <laughs> That's a great place to end it on. But James, thank you so much. It's been great fun talking to you. And um, yeah, I, I, I love the model. I, I love seeing what you're getting up to. And I also love the fact that you can't seem to tackle just one thing at a time because um, yeah, that's, that, that's always great to see. But um, thank you so much for being our guest and spending some time with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email 
of alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.